I do not consider myself to be ambitious at all. As a matter of fact, let me even shock you more. My goal in high school and in college, one was to play in the WNBA, that was a goal. But the other goal was to be married with children. No job, I didn't even know what job I was gonna have, I just wanted to be married with children. That was my job. So it's funny to think now, all that I've accomplished and all that I'm doing, that there was some part of me that was actually ambitious, that it was just kind of waiting to come out. And so I laugh when people ask me, am I ambitious? Because I still don't think that I'm ambitious. I think what happens for me is that I live in a space of what can I do and where are my strengths? And that's what I work. Welcome to the Women on the Move podcast. I'm your host, Sam Saperstein. In this episode, I'm speaking with Dr. Wendy Bollaby, Chicago Bulls Director of Mental Performance and Health and founder of Bollaby Consulting. She utilizes her personal philosophy and authenticity to support athletes, young women, and even herself to optimize performance and become mentally tough. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Wendy, it's so nice to have you on our Women on the Move podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'm pretty excited about it. I'd love to start out by talking about your current role. You're the Director of Mental Performance and Health for the Chicago Bulls. Would love for you to tell us about your role. I work with the players and the coaches and anybody actually in the basketball operations facilities, the athletic trainers, everybody. We all have to perform because that's what it's about. It's about performing better mentally. And so if you think about strength and conditioning coach or a nutritionist or a physical therapist, they get you back in different pieces of your body to help you perform. And what I do is on the brain, the acumen, rub the neck. So help you be able to tackle some of those things that can possibly prevent you from performing your best at your job. I work in the sports industries, but again, I think about it as I say all the time, performance is performance is performance. So no matter what your job is, you have to perform better or more specific example. When I think about professional athletes and people like us, let's say that you have a meeting, you're late for the meeting. And then after the meeting, you have to go to work. And of course, after work slash practice, the media is there with microphones asking you, why were you late for the meeting? Because you're late for the meeting. Is it going to prevent the coach from playing you? Is your leadership going to come to play? Are the team going to listen to you? Are you going to get a new contract? How's it going to be with the overall organization because you were late and you were late because your daughter was sick? Has this role of being a sports psychologist been in the industry for a long time? Tell us about its evolution. Sports psychology has actually been around for a long time. It started with, actually, it's Chicago Cubs. They were the first team that had a sports psychologist in the 1920s. So it's been around for quite a while. It just so happens, as you say, evolution, as we continue to grow and life continues to get harder and more things came to compound on our everyday life, our mental wellness has become more of a problem. And we got to focus on it. You hear it more because of how life has evolved, but it's been around for quite a long time. Have there been changes that you've observed since you've been in the industry, especially more recently post-COVID? Yes. The changes has been more of just the conversations. Again, you hear it more. People want to talk about it more. And I also think that people realize that it's not an easy job. When I first started, I would always hear people say, oh my gosh, I should have done that. That's an easy thing. And now I think people are actually realizing it's not as easy as it sounds. (laughs) I mean, it's great that you get to hang around sports and athletes, but it's not an easy job. I can't imagine it is. It also makes me wonder, how do you take care of yourself when you do this job? What are the things that you turn to? There's essentially three, but one thing I always do, I work out, I try to stay physically active and some people like showers, some people like baths. I am a shower girl. I could do a 45 minute shower with Sade on a listening. That's a, (laughs) don't always get to do that. But something I always do is I love hot tea. So every day, it's usually five minutes. It's enough. Five minutes, no TV, no phone, no kids, no work. It's just silence. And I just get to enjoy my cup of hot tea. 
I love that. Something we can all do. Tell us when you first became interested in sports psychology, how did your career take off and where did your interests actually come from? So I actually heard about sports psychology when I was still living in Oklahoma. I was working with depressed and schizophrenic adults. My bachelor's degree is in psychology. And so I just graduated undergraduate and it's been a couple of years working in this field. And my coworker was going to a sports psych conference in New Orleans. She knew I was an athlete. And so she asked if I'd go with her and our job was going to pay for us to go to this conference. And so I said, yes. And I had a great time. I actually didn't even attend a single sports psychology, anything. I don't even know if I even rolled for the conference. I just had a great weekend in New Orleans on my job. And then about a year later, I moved to Atlanta. But then I was working with adolescent male sex offenders. And I actually loved my job, but I thought I needed more, something more of a challenge mentally. And I started thinking, well, what was that sports psych thing? I remember going to that conference. What was that? So then I started looking into it and investigating it and thought, this is a career. People get paid for this. But I realized I had to do more education for that to happen. And so I inquired at Georgia Southern to see if they had a master's program. And so went in that direction and got my master's. And while I was getting my master's, I thought I wanted to work with athletes, the applied piece, which is what I'm doing now. A pivotal part for me was during my program, my advisor, Dr. Kevin Burke, still remember this this day, says to me, that I might want to think about going in the education route of sports psychology or going into the research side of sports psychology. Because he said to me that sports psychology was a lily white field, quote unquote, and white males are not going to sit down and let a black woman take their jobs. Was this coming out of he wanted to actually warn you or was actually buying into that cultural? He wanted to prepare me that this was not going to be an easy thing. I hear you want to work with athletes but it's not going to be easy. This is what you're facing. I appreciate that because that that gave me, not that I was naive to it, but I really was. It never even occurred to me that I was not going to be able to work in this space. But he put it in a really good perspective of it's going to be hard. How did you process this and how did you use that moving forward, that kind of input? The beginning, I was pretty upset over it because I thought I'm just finishing this degree and then I'm not going to be able to do what I want to do. I did think I need to go on and get my, my clinical doctorate so I can work with the whole athlete. Somewhere in that space of those four years of me working on my doctorate, I started to think, how am I going to do this job? And I started to get practice and try to figure out what it was going to look like and how I was going to get into these spaces. And one of the things that I realized off the bat was that I needed to be me authentically. I couldn't change who I was in order to get a position that if I was me and I felt like being me would fit the different sides of the coaches or athletes. I just thought who I was, but I needed to figure out all aspects of me and be able to just use that and get into these and be able to maneuver. And so I don't know if I would have had that thought if it went for him making that statement to me. I don't know if I'd have really been thinking, how do I do this? I was just thinking this is going to be my job. And so my first job after getting my doctorate was at James Madison University. That was my internship and then my postdoc. They welcomed me and wanted me to do a lot of things, which was great, but I got to practice those things and how to do that. And I got to see I just remember my first year so much. I just got to see when I was myself, my goofy, regular self, they gravitated to me. When I tried to be somebody else, it didn't work. Again, I don't know if I would have thought of that if he wouldn't have said that to me. That's so interesting that, first of all, it didn't stop you, thankfully. But second, it really sounds like it set a philosophy for you in terms of how you wanted to operate. How did you get to the NBA? Tell us about that move. At the time, I stopped working for the Olympics. I wanted to stay at home, be a stay-at-home mom. So I did that for about 14 months. And being in San Diego, I was there by myself. And so my kids were growing up with no family. And that became more real. Babies, toddlers, that they started getting older. And I thought, they're going to grow up without any cousins or family. My parents live in Oklahoma. It's going to be really hard as they get older to get on a five-hour flight to San Diego. So I need to really think about what that's going to look like for them. 
I thought my sister lives in Chicago because I know I needed to be in a city. So I thought I'm going to move to Chicago the summer of 2016. That was my plan. I made that plan in 2015. So I thought in 2016, I'll make the move to Chicago. I did a little investigating, talked to some people and tried to figure out job wise, what could I do? Because I wasn't working at the time. As I looked around, I thought there's nobody there with my credentials. I just need to get to Chicago and then be able to make those connections and relationships and I could be able to get a job and in the field. So that was my plan. And at the time I did some independent work for the MBA. So I would fly out and do a day here, two days here. And I got a phone call in November 2015 from the Chicago Bulls. And they had received my name from Ken Revisa, which Ken Revisa is a world famous sports psychologist. I actually learned about Ken Revisa when I was in school. He was in the books. He's one of those people who was in the books. They got my name from Ken Revisa because he was in Chicago. They were looking to hire somebody and he gave them three names. Mine was one of them. So they wanted to call and talk to me about a job in Chicago and working for the Bulls. I thought, if I'm deciding to move from San Diego to Chicago with two three-year-olds with no job, and I get a call from the Chicago Bulls, I think God's telling me I'm supposed to be in Chicago. That is a great call at the right moment. So you mentioned that you often like to use with yourself things that you use with your athletes, your philosophy on how they can think about their mental health and toughness. What is that exactly? What is that framework that you like to use? It actually starts the base of self-awareness. And I think about self-awareness in a space of it's ever-changing and growing and developing. So you're always having to be attuned to who you are. It's not the self-awareness where you say, when I get hungry, get angry, or when I'm tired, I may want to lay down or I need something to drink. Not that kind. The self-awareness in a more in-depth meaning that you're in a meeting and someone says something and you get in your feelings and you stop talking. What just happened? What was said? What do you need to do? Because you still need to be productive in that meeting. What happened? What do you need to say to pivot? And then it may go in another direction. How do you pivot and still be productive? That's the kind of self-awareness I'm talking about. So when you leave a meeting, I don't want you to go, man, I don't even know what just happened, but I did not like that space. I want you to leave the meeting going, this was said, this is what I did. This is how I crushed it. I got to figure out this piece because I didn't know what to do here because that's going to happen again. That's the kind of things I'm talking about when I sell self-awareness. It's real. That's the basis of it. Then we go into your superpower and your strengths because I think we all have a superpower. There's a strength that you have and I want to figure out what that is and I want you to find out what it is because I want you to use it. We want to feel good. So know what that is and then you can like call upon it. You can use it. Is your superpower that you can compartmentalize really well? Yes. Absolutely. You get jobs that you can do that. That's what it is, right? And so we want to know what your superpower is. On the same vein as that, is that you got to know what kryptonite, you got to know what's going to take you down. Because if you don't know what that is, then we're in some deep territory. Because we all know it's going to happen. Something's going to happen. And so if you already know that if you are a person that wants to get physically active, if you want to get back into running or walking, whatever the case may be, and you schedule your workouts in the afternoon, however, you're a morning person, that didn't really make a lot of sense. Sounds so straightforward. How did you use that approach with yourself when you were going through this hard time with your young children? I talk about often what I call when I quit the first grade. It was a situation I had when we were in the shut-in. Everybody was shut in. We were in the houses and, and I am a solo parent. So my only conversation was two seven-year-olds. I went from doing my job to being home and doing my job in addition, I had to teach first grade to two seven-year-olds. That became very difficult. If you know anything about the quote-unquote new math, then you know exactly what I'm talking about because I had no idea about the new math. And so I was struggling. I had to watch a video prior to and then come in and have to uh, teach them this math. I tell people all the time they learned how to carry the wand really quickly because <laughs> I didn't know, right? And so it was probably seven weeks into it that I was just, I was drowning. And I called their teacher and said, we quit the first grade because I couldn't do it. Me doing that brought me back to, wait a minute, you're not even doing what you teach. Where's the self-awareness? Where's your strengths? What are your obstacles? What are your goals? 
I didn't do any of that. So I had to go back and know that I like to have structure, but it needs to be fluid where I can ad lib. And so I needed to put that into the schedule. I needed to work out the first thing in the morning. I needed that piece. I needed to have my tea. I need to make sure that was there. My strengths, which is being able to be in the moment. So I started to just, we maneuver that and work with that. And the goals are what we're going to do this week. What are we going to accomplish this week? It wasn't every day. It was we're going to get two science experiments this week. Great. We can do two, whatever that looks like. I needed to quit the first grade. <laughs> and then I needed to remember what I teach everybody else. <laughs> that is phenomenal. I hope that worked and that you were able to continue the first grade and get back in there. I'd love to talk more about mental toughness. How do you describe mental toughness, particularly in sports? Let's start there. When things are good, you can accomplish almost anything you want to. That's just a regular day, should I say? For me, the mental toughness piece comes in is can you accomplish all those things on the days where you're sick, your child is sick, you're late for work, your boss is mad at you, you're having to do extra work, you're going to miss your child's recital. When all of those real life things come into play, can you still accomplish what you need to? Can you still put aside? That's the way I think of mental toughness. Can you still handle those things when things are not great? I mean, that sounds completely relevant outside of sports. Do you also work with athletes on mental toughness under pressure? So in the game moment, when they have to do something big, how do they draw upon that inner reserve? I do. Obviously, it's different for every person where they go. And we often talk about a flow state. People talk about like a runner's high when you get in that space. Everything feels like it's great and you're going really slow or you're not thinking about things. And that's where you want folks to be. When you're not thinking step by step what needs to happen, you're just in that space. You can get there sometimes. We can't always just call upon it. We see it, you know, in sports, we see people that are, all of a sudden they're like, boom, it seems like it does. I don't feel it's just that simple. Just like everything else we do, it's something you have to practice and you have to perfect. Again, it's different for every person, but you got to know what is going to make that switch for you. And everybody has a different piece for that. And so could you transfer that into a work component? So in the work world, what would that look like? Your flow and being able to switch into what sounds like just automatic capability. So let's say that you are late for class it's eight o'clock class and you're late for it. And you get to class and it's one of those professors that shuts the door. So you got to knock on the door to get in and you're all embarrassed and you sit down and you realize you didn't pack your lunch and you've got classes all the way through. And then you go to whatever your sport practice is. And then you look up and the person in front of you is handing you a quiz and you're like, oh my God, I forgot to study for the quiz. So you walk out of the class at 8.55 and you think this is the worst day ever. And then you proceed to find things that reinforces the worst day. You hear some song that reminds you of somebody. And you're like, yes, that reminds me of this breakup or this whatever. And this person may not say hello to you, not because they don't want to. Maybe they're in their own space and you think, why is he mad at me? What did I do? What's happening? Is it because of me? What did I say? They don't like me. You go along this negative piece. So let's flip it over and say that you get up in time and you have breakfast, you pack your lunch, you pack your bag, you get to class on time, you study for the quiz. And at 8.55, you just walk out the door. It's just a regular day. We don't walk out the door and go, I crushed that last 45 minutes. We just walk out and think it's just a regular day. And so then things become on that regular day becomes on an average level. Not that you got to celebrate every little thing that you do, right? Wow, I crushed that test. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is that when you do something that seems normal, you acknowledge that you were successful and then you move on to the next piece to be successful again, because it's just another step in your day. Instead of going down the downward step, I want you to go up the upward step and the little things because we do the downward step really easy. How I teach that to happen is that I want you to have things that you can call upon that can help switch that for you. Everybody has something different, whether you need to be back to the self-awareness piece, whether you need to smile, do you need to focus, what's going to help you get back into that piece? And so whatever that is, for me, it's going to be, if I laugh, 
It's a trigger for me. So I have in my head images of things that just make me laugh. That's just going to make, put a smile on my face. So when those moments happen, I can smile and go, the next thing, let's go. The next thing, let's go. So I'm looking for positives, positive, positive, but you got to have it already part of your tool belt, not when it happens. And we always wait for when it happens and we're like, I don't know what to do. And I'm saying, you have to practice before, just like you practice the physical piece, just like you practice writing. Are you going to do a presentation? You don't just get up and do a presentation. You write it out, right? You practice it. See what it's going to sound like, what's going to go through before you go do a presentation. This is the same thing. You practice it. Wendy, the philosophy is really powerful. And I'm wondering if you could tell us a story or share an example of someone who used it and how they became successful as a result. I worked with a baseball player that had a routine, which most baseball players do prior to stepping into the box, right? They all have their, or even when they get into the box, they have their little routine. Wanted to develop a routine for him so he can stay in the space. So he was somebody that compartmentalized really well, so which was great on the field. He wanted something that could help him let go of the next thing and pay to, his, to what's coming up. And so we developed a routine for him. He made it quite lengthy, which everyone has their thing, right? So this was a little lengthy. And he was up to bat, came into the batter's box and started his routine, got in there and the pitcher didn't wait and he pitched. And it was a strike. And he stepped out of the batter's box and started the routine all over again, stepped back in, didn't finish, and the pitcher pitched again. And the umpire called the ball. He stepped out of the box, did the routine all over again. This time the pitcher waited, pitched, and he hit a home run. The thing to that story that I want people to hear is that this was maybe 10 months in the working. This was not a instantly he did this. This was 10 months in the working and him figuring out what he wanted to do, how to do it, working it, working it, working it having it fail at different times. This is a time where it's successful. Again, it was nine to 10 months for that space. But the thing that I remember when he, after the game that we talked about, that he was, obviously he was hyped about the home run, but he was most proud of the fact that he stepped out of the box and didn't allow the pitcher to change his routine or his speed or his mental focus. He wanted to control it. And so he was very happy that he controlled it and didn't allow the pitcher to control it. So he used all the things that we talked about. So it was a really great moment because I thought the same thing, but it was really great to hear him say, yeah, the home run was great. However, I now know I can do this. I really love that because I think people can take action on that to find that self-awareness first, understand what's going to make them switch, become happier, whatever it is, bounce back and then do that. I love it. So thank you. That seems like a really practical thing that even us non-athletes can do. Would love to talk about what it's like being a woman in the sports industry and in sports psychology. Do you see a lot of other women practicing? And if not, how do you feel possibly being the only in many rooms that you're in? There isn't a lot of women. I will say though, we laugh because we call ourselves the Magnificent Seven. I'm a part of a group of women that we support each other. Outside of that, there isn't a lot. It's growing, but there's definitely not a lot of women in sports psychology and obviously not a lot of women in sports. I'm the only female basketball operations full-time for the Bulls. It is a difficult space to be in. I struggle, obviously, on a regular basis, being a mom and being a woman and trying to maneuver all of those and having the space where the men don't understand. And it's not no fault of their own. It's just they're not in that space. They don't understand what we need to go through and maneuver these different times. And so I think that I would love for it to grow women in sports. And I think when women get bigger jobs and bring other women along, I think that helps us in that space as well big component of that, wanting to bring other women along, because I think that's just going to continue to help us in that space. But it is definitely lack thereof. Maybe fewer girls in sports or fewer opportunities that they see. You wonder how they project being able to do this as a career after their sports career is over. What do you tell your own daughter about that? What's the legacy you want to leave for the younger generation? 
I started a non-for-profit. It's called Wisdom Knot, K-N-O-T. And it's about educating inner city youth and careers in sports besides being an athlete. So it's exactly what you're talking about, Sam. It's about saying that you can still be connected to athletics, but you don't have to be an athlete. And then also looking at who they are and what they bring to the table. And maybe that could be in a different job. Maybe it's not in sports, but wanting that empowerment to be a part of it. And so I think obviously the more women that girls see in doing these jobs, the more they're going to gravitate to that, right? But I also think the more men talk about it is the same thing. The more men say, a woman can do this job. My daughter does this job. That's a big selling point to hear a male state that a woman can do X, Y, and Z job. And so I think that if girls hear that, that's an empowerment in itself. There's so much research to talk about the number of women in the C-suites that play sports. And they say it's the competition and knowing that you can lose, you can fail, you pick yourself back up. And you also have team members around you doing that. There's so many great analogies that carry over into the workplace. So I do wish I stayed longer in some of my sports that I did growing up because you really see the value. I tell my daughter, she's all into dance and gymnastics. And I tell you, you have to play a team sport. It doesn't matter what it is, but at some point you have to play a team sport just for the reasons that we're talking. I need you to experience that. Yes, I totally agree. And hopefully if more men come out for women's sports too, to support that, not only as fans for the athletes, but also to support it economically, that hopefully we have more of a runway for girls and then to stay in the sports. So Wendy, in addition to your nonprofit, you also have a consulting firm and would love for you to tell us about that. When did you start it and what led you to create that too? I mean, it's not like you're not busy enough here. So what was the motivation behind it? It was about women and sports psychology. That was the motivation. There's not a lot of training grounds, should I say, for sports psychology. There's just not a lot of places where you can learn how to do this. And so I thought, again, bringing women along with me, I thought if I need to be able to do that. And so that's where it started. That's why I wanted to have the consulting business so I could have an intern. That way they could work a little bit with the Bulls, work a little bit with whatever university and it's UIC that I'm connected with. And so they get that training. They get paid through those organizations, but they get to learn through me how to be a sports psychologist. That's still going on, but it's also involved into me doing things like this being able to do podcasts and do presentations. And so that's been a big space that the consulting business has gone into. It literally started because I wanted to have a space where I could be a supervisor for women to want to get into sports psychology. Oh, I love that. How do you help women manage things like pay inequity or work-life balance or just any sexism that they might experience in the business? It's the real conversations. That's one thing that I've learned in this process is that we don't have those conversations as women. We don't talk about what we make. We don't talk about the struggles or what we need, what's going on. We may talk about it with our girlfriends in the space that we're complaining, but having a conversation with someone that is in the career that you're trying to go in or having a conversation with just someone that is business focused, having those conversations with those kind of women and having the real ones. I think that's something that I just didn't see a lot. And so I try to have those real conversations. So when I'm asked, I'm, I try to talk about it and that this is exactly what you should do. And especially when it comes to equity, when it comes to money, I learned off the fly. It happened by happenstance. I needed to look to see what men in this position are making. And that's something that I state to women. You need to find out what people are making in this position that they're offering you, that you're interviewing for. And you don't need to ask somebody what they're really making because maybe they don't want, but you can get a range, 30 to 40,000, 70, 80,000. Find out what men are doing in that space and find out what their job is. When you go to that meeting, you can say, I've talked to five people, this is what they're making and this is what they're doing. And I'm bringing five more things to the table. Back to the self-awareness. What are those five things you're bringing? You got to know it. <laughs> 
I love what you're saying too. Speak to the women in your life about the issues you're facing. When you want to benchmark yourself and especially around pay, bring in the men as well. I think that's where as women, we have to get those additional data points because there are differences clearly. So we'd love to talk to you about ambition. This is a topic that we talk to our guests a lot about on this podcast. So I just want to first start with the question, do you consider yourself ambitious? And if so, what are you ambitious to do or to have? I do not consider myself to be ambitious at all. As a matter of fact, let me even shock you more. My goal in high school and in college, one was to play in the WNBA. That was a goal. But the other goal was to be married with children. No job. I didn't even know what job I was going to have. I just wanted to be married with children. That was my job. So just funny to think now all that I've accomplished and all that I'm doing, that there was some part of me that was actually ambitious, that it was just kind of waiting to come out. And so I laugh when people ask me, am I ambitious? Because I still don't think that I'm ambitious. I think what happens for me is that I live in a space of what can I do and where are my strengths? And that's what I work. And I think doing that, I tend to bring things to me. I tend to have, I can do that or I can be a part of this. I want to kind of go in that direction. And so I maneuver in that space. I like to look at, again, look at my strengths. And another thing that I do that I think pushes that ambitious piece is that I always think every year, what is my word? What is my focus? What am I going to do? And during the shut-in, one of the things I thought, I want to write a book. I'm not a great writer. I don't even know if I can write a book, but that's something I can push. Even if the book doesn't even get published, just the fact that I'm going through this process is going to be a growth for me. Who knows what I'm going to find in that space? And so doing that led to more things. So it's back to me trying to be the best me that I can be. And that pushes me. Then that brings other things into my orbit because I'm just trying to continue to be the best me that I can be. It's so interesting to hear you say this because on the one hand, while you say, no, I wasn't ambitious, you wanted to be in the WNBA. That is a huge goal. Balance family life with it, I think is an amazing goal. So it strikes me that you are ambitious or maybe you are ambitious to realize your potential or to do things that, again, you know you can do or you can find that next journey for yourself. But it's interesting that the word is almost so fraught with meaning. What do you want to leave our audience with in terms of being inspired for them to reach their goals, whether, again, they call themselves ambitious or not? How should they be thinking about setting those goals and achieving them? I want to leave them with a, I think it's John Gordon, but the book is How to Be a Coffee Bean. And I actually use the children's version. There's an adult version, but I use a children's version that I give. And it talks about the fact that if you take hot water and you put an egg in it, or so that the egg becomes hard and you don't want to be hard. You don't want to be a hard person to work with or deal with the bee. You don't want that. If you put a carrot in the hot water, it becomes mushy and you don't want to be that person either. However, if you put a coffee bean in the hot water, what happens? They come together, they work together, they develop something magical, coffee. So that's what I want to leave them with, is that I want you to be a coffee bean. I want you to come together with the things in your life and develop something magical. And that can be anything in your corner of the world. And that means that you want to be the best PTA mom, the best PTA dad, then make coffee and be the best PTA mom or dad. Thank you so much, Wendy. It's such a pleasure to speak with you and to hear about all the amazing things you're doing. And we will be watching for you and of course for the Bulls and really wish you the best. So thank you so much. Thank you for having me. This is so much fun. I'm so glad that I was invited to do this.
Thank you for listening to my conversation with Dr. Wendy Bollaby. I was inspired to hear her commitment to bringing other women along in the sports psychology field. And I love how she strives to be a role model in success and failure for both her kids and especially her daughter. The mission of Women on the Move is to help women in their professional and personal lives. Our goal is to introduce you to people with great ideas, inspiring stories, and a passion to make a difference. To learn more about Women on the Move and listen to the full library of this podcast, please visit jpmorganchase.com slash W-O-T-M. For JPMorgan Chase's Women on the Move, I'm Sam Saperstein. JPMorgan Chase Bank, N.A., member FDIC.